Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just as the children have sung, it's Jesus' name that we want to honor and praise. And we do that first and foremost by listening to him. And so we pray that by his apostle and by his spirit that he would speak to us this morning, enable us to understand fully, enable us to walk fully in him according to his word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. You'll find that on page 978 of the Pew Bible. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. Paul has been speaking about holiness, that that's the mark of this new community, new society of the church that God is building for himself. And he gives us some specific examples here of what that holiness is to look like. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I was not and am not a runner, although I ran a lot for sports. But whenever you run by yourself, it's easy to set a very easy pace for yourself and not push yourself along. Maybe when someone else joins you, and particularly if that someone else is a very good runner, they begin to push you along and you realize just what kind of lazy pace you had set for yourself. In a way, that's a bit of what James talks about when he speaks of being a hearer of the word and not a doer, of looking in the mirror and forgetting what you look like and turning away. It's the kind of person who sets his own pace of pursuit of holiness and doesn't realize just how much of an easy pace it really is. And it's not until we look intently at the Scriptures that we begin to see God's pace for us in terms of holiness so that we're then pushed along a little bit further. It's very easy for Christians to be content with being just a little bit nicer, being a little bit kinder in the way in which we relate to people, but not necessarily pursuing the particulars, the specifics about a life of holiness. And what Paul does here is give us some specifics. Five, in particular, qualities of being created in the likeness of God and righteousness and holiness, as he has just said. And he speaks here of truth-telling, of righteous anger, of diligent labor, of edifying speech, and having a gracious attitude. But before we get to those particulars of the way in which we ought to live as Christians, We need to recognize the pattern of sanctification, the pattern of growing in holiness. 
It's what Paul described last week in terms of the putting off of sin and the putting on of righteousness. Because in each one of these examples that Paul gives, he does just that. He tells us both the negative, what we're to put off, and the positive, what we're to actually put on by faith in Christ. And it's important that we understand that both of these are vital to living a life of holiness in Christ. You might think of the image of Joseph when he was put in jail in Egypt. But then when he was exalted from jail to the court of Pharaoh, what happened? His old rags were taken off, he was washed, and new clothes were put on that were appropriate for the court of Pharaoh. And that's a picture in a sense of what it looks like for the Christian. We're to put off the old nature when we come to Christ. And we're to put on the new nature when we trust in Him. And that continually throughout the Christian life, we put off sin and we put on righteousness. Can't fill a house with the good aromas of cooking unless you first take out the trash. And even if you just take out the trash, you can't fill the house with good aromas unless you actually start cooking. And we ought to be those kind of people who are constantly taking out the trash, but seeking to then live out the Christian life by faith in Jesus. What happens if we don't? What happens if we're more focused on one to the exclusion, you might say, of the other? What happens when we focus on putting off sin without really focusing on putting on righteousness? Well, you can seek to rid yourself of one sin only to fill that void with another sin. I have a friend whose mother was dying of emphysema and he struggled to quit smoking and he said, this is it, I'm finally going to quit. And he took his cigarettes and he ripped them up and he threw them aside. Within a few days, he was chewing tobacco. It's easy to replace one sin with another. You might think of a person who is focused on materialism. They want to live for what this life can give them, all the possessions. And maybe they come to the point where they say, now this is not the life worth living. And they put that off only re to replace it with a sense of pride that now I give away all my possessions and that person over there doesn't. You see, if we're focused on putting off without putting on righteousness, then that's the kind of person we become, replacing one sin with another. Or what happens if we ignore the patterns of sin in our lives and simply seek to put on righteousness? Well, it's like having a yard that's covered in kudzu and trying to go out and spread grass seed and expecting to have a good lawn. It just doesn't work. And so Paul wants us to recognize here the pattern of sanctification, the pattern of gospel living is always putting off sin and putting on righteousness and so what are these particulars well the first is this truth telling truth telling verse 25 says therefore having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another we're to put away falsehood and be people who no longer speak lies which hints at the fact that at one time, we were people who actually built our lives on lies. It wasn't just that we lied, but that our whole life was founded on a lie. 
And the lie was the same lie that Eve believed, that if I eat of the fruit, I will be like God. I will be master of my own domain. And that's the lie that every non-Christian builds their life upon. I am Lord, and there is no other. And every other lie that comes from that foundation is a lie to support it. Some people tell lies to guard their reputation because after all, if I am the central figure in my life, if life is all about me, then I better guard my reputation. For other people, maybe they lie to get an advantage. Think of selling a car and somebody asks you, what are some of the troubles you've had with this car? Well, I haven't had any troubles with this car. It's been great. It's hardly ever been in the shop. Lie to get an advantage on the sale. Maybe it's making an excuse for why we can't do something. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm too busy. I've got other things I've got to do. I'm too committed. I've got errands to run when we're actually free and we have the time. Sometimes it's just being late. I'm sorry there was an emergency. It came up and I, I just couldn't get here any quicker. And we tell these lies to our advantage. Why? Because if we've given in to the lie that Jesus is not Lord but I am Lord of my life, well, then I'm the most important person in my life and I better guard myself. Point being that every lie that's told is in protection of the greater lie. In other words, all lies come from false theology of believing the wrong things about God and believing the wrong things about ourselves. And so what Paul does here is say, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now this is actually an Old Testament quotation from the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 16. And it's in the context of God bringing His people back from exile and renewing them and saying, now if you are My people and I have saved you by grace, live as My people. And one of the marks of My people is that they tell the truth. And so Paul picks up on this and says, one of the marks of this new society of the church of Jesus Christ is that they tell the truth, and they tell the truth to one another. This truth-telling is to be part of what it means to belong to the people of God because it builds trust. Without the foundation of trust, the church doesn't work properly. And you can't have trust unless we're honest with one another. He says here, we are members one of another. In other words, to lie is to do damage to myself. If I'm a member of the body, then to lie to the body is actually to harm myself because I'm part of the body. Sort of like nerve cells, in effect, lying to the brain and saying, there's no pain here. There's no danger here. And what ends up happening is the body is, ends up being destroyed. And so here he's saying we ought not lie because we are members one of another. And when we tell the truth, the body works properly. So we ought to tell the truth about our commitment levels. What we really can do and what we can't do. Tell the truth about our strengths and about our weaknesses. We ought to tell the truth about other people's achievements so that they feel validated and encouraged we ought to tell the truth about our needs so that people in the church can use their gifts and bless us and our needs can be met. 
Church leaders ought to be transparent and open and honest about the business of the church so that the rest of the congregation looks upon the leaders and say, those are people I can trust. It's not some secret society that's at work behind the scenes, but people who are doing things open and honestly in the light of day. And certainly we ought to tell the truth about our own struggles with sin. Not that we tell everybody all the details, but that we don't hide our sin as live as if there's nothing wrong with us and we don't need grace, that we don't need Jesus to forgive us, that we don't need the transforming power of the gospel. But there's a sense of transparency about us and maybe with those close few in the church, we're actually honest and say, I'm struggling here. Help me, brother. You see, when we tell the truth, the church functions as the church. But not only truth-telling, but he also talks here about another quality, and that's righteous anger. He says here in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And what we have here is another quote from the Old Testament. You can tell that Paul's ethics and his understanding of morality flow straight from the Old Testament. And what he quotes here is David who cries out to the Lord for help when he is on the run from his enemies. And then David gives instructions upon waiting on the Lord. He says, be angry and do not sin. Now that statement, be angry and do not sin, sounds a bit like an oxymoron about two things that are opposed to each other and maybe can't be reconciled. But actually the Scriptures do reconcile them for us. And they reconcile them in Christ. Because Jesus, after all, was the one who got angry at sin. He was the one who went and turned over the tables of the money changers. He was angry at sin. Not simply that He was personally violated, but that the honor of God was violated. And so he says, be angry and do not sin. We ought to be angry at certain things. We ought to be at angry at the sin of the world, of cruelty against children, of how the poor are exploited by foreign dictators. We ought to be angry at such things. We ought to be angry that someone has robbed us of our possessions or that they've stolen our identity. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that there's a holy, righteous anger that we ought to have. And so there's two types here, righteous and unrighteous anger. And positively, what Paul is saying is we ought to be uh, angry at unrighteousness. We ought to be angry at sin. It is sad that the church is not more angry at sin. That in many ways we are uneducated about the struggles in the world. Or that we passively walk by them. That there are thousands of children who are murdered every year in abortion clinics. That injustice takes place all around us. That there are children right here in Henderson County who go without food every single week. We ought to be angry at those things. And in some ways, we haven't followed the Lord Jesus Christ into that kind of righteous anger that wants to do something about it. You may have heard the story about the Egyptian monk, Telemarchus, who in 
404 A.D. Traveled from Egypt to Rome and he went into the Colosseum for the first time. And he saw the brutality of the gladiator games, of men trying to kill one another, slaughtering themselves, and of the crowds of 50,000 people cheering them on and delighting in it. How he had enough and he walked down onto the floor of the Colosseum. And he tried his best to get in between the gladiators to say, stop the madness. And the crowds would have nothing of it. And they screamed at him and they threw rocks and stoned him to death. And yet three days later, the emperor, having heard the story, said enough is enough. And he outlawed the gladiator games forever. Here's one who had a righteous and holy anger at sin that these things ought not to take place. And he was willing to lay down himself to focus upon those things and deal with them. And so we ought to have a righteous anger and not only at the world, but also at the sin of our own hearts. David is our example here when he says in Psalm 139, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do not... I loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. In other words, because God is being defamed, He hates the sin of the world. But guess what? He doesn't stop there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, he's not just mad at sin out there, that it's somebody else's fault. He's saying, I'm mad at my own sin, that I continue to do these kinds of things, that this kind of ugliness lives within me and damages other people around me. And it's when we come to that point that we cry out for mercy and for grace from the Lord. But not only does Paul give positive instruction that we ought to be angry at sin with a righteous hatred, but also that we should be those people who do not respond sinfully to anger. Be angry and do not sin. Personal retaliation, vengeance, uncontrolled outbursts of rage, silent stewing and plotting, indifference towards someone else that gives them the cold shoulder. He says this ought not to be part of our response. Be angry and do not sin. And not only does he address the response, but he addressed the length of our anger too. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now it's interesting that Paul actually diverts from Psalm 4, verse 4, where David there says this, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So be angry and do not sin, and then ponder on your, in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So he's taking this command of be angry and do not sin and giving a particular application and saying you ought to ponder in your own hearts before you rashly do something that will be even more harmful than what has already taken place. Paul wants to give a different application of it. And what he says here is that we should not let the sun go down on our anger. So while David is concerned with waiting patiently on the deliverance of the Lord, Paul is concerned about the unity of the church and that our anger might not be a corrosive force that destroys the church from the inside out. 
And so we're to be those who deal with it and resolve it quickly. Now, this could mean that we're supposed to resolve the issue before we go to bed. That's often how it's interpreted. That we ought not to let the sun go down on anger means before I go to bed tonight, I have to resolve the issue. But you know that sometimes it gets late at night and it's not productive for husbands and wives to try to deal with things in a matter of anger and hostility. You know that work-related problems often take more than one day to deal with. That conflicts in the church can involve the church leadership and be drawn out into a process that can take months to deal with. So what is he saying? He doesn't say, let, don't let the anger Uh, Don't let the sun go down on your conflict, but rather don't let the sun go down on your anger. Resolve your anger before you go to sleep. Deal with that. Even though the problem may not be resolved, our anger ought to be put aside. Because undisciplined emotions, in which all night long we're stewing on our hatred and anger, or all the next day, or into the days and weeks ahead, That's what's counterproductive to the body life of the people of God. And so he says, put aside your anger. That's what Paul is concerned with, the timeline of our anger and not the timeline of the resolution. And Paul warns against holding on to anger here because what does he say? Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil recognizes that the devil would like nothing less than to get a foothold here by allowing anger and strife to be stirred up among the people of God. And so we're to respond rightly in a manner that's consistent with God's Word, going to someone in private, taking the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of somebody else's eye, and speaking openly and honestly. But we're also to deal with our anger And replace it with a desire for reconciliation. Christ-like love for other sinners and patience. That vengeance belongs to the Lord and not to us. So he talks about truth-telling and righteous anger, but also diligent labor. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So Paul here is basically quoting one of the Ten Commandments against stealing. And it's interesting that he uses the present tense. The one who is stealing ought to stop. Theft still goes on in the church among the people of God. If you live life on the internet, you know that it's very easy to steal off of the internet. Whether it's mu- music, whether it's movies whether it's students in middle school, high school, college, postgraduate work, whatever it might be, plagiarizing work that other people have done and clipping it from one place and inserting it in to their own work. Theft still goes on. Of course, at work we can steal the ideas of other people and use them as our own. We can steal time from our employers by doing personal matters on work time, shortchanging the company. We can steal at church by not returning things that we borrowed or by assuming that other people will pay for gospel ministry even when we have the means to contribute something. 
And so Paul counters this destructive way of life by saying, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Contrary to what some people believe, work is not part of the curse. It is part of the noble work of imaging God in the world. And Paul says we ought to be those who work and work hard. And one of the reasons is this, that we might give generously to those in need. That's what he says. Work so that we can be those who contribute, not simply those who receive. That's the picture of the early church, isn't it? In Acts chapter 2, where people were selling their possessions and giving to those in need. We labor so that we can bless other people. So that we can provide for our family. So that we can provide for our church. So that we can provide for our community. It gives a whole new meaning to career. Career is not simply me establishing my name, establishing my kingdom, and establishing my possessions. But it's about me laboring so that I can be generous with others. After the Lord Jesus Christ, whose work was so that He could share graciously. In fact, He shares all of creation with His people. And so we ought to be those who are mature Christians wanting to take responsibility for the welfare of others. Well, the fourth thing is this, edifying speech. You know, the phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That couldn't be any further from the truth. You know the power of words and just how destructive they can be. And Paul knows that. And so he says here in verse four, uh, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may, may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk or rotten talk come out of your mouth. It's the same words that Jesus uses when He speaks of that bad tree that bears bad fruit. The bad heart that bears bad fruit in life. Particularly with corrupting, rotten, putrid language. And it's not just profanity. It's lies. It's slander. It's words that are meant to hurt other people. It's teasing and nagging. It's coarse words. And he says, instead of that, our speech ought to build one, another's up, one another up. Encouraging, comforting, cheering one another to motivate others to do good. This is the power of words. And God Himself knows the power of words and continually speaks good words to His people. To say, you're My children. You're dearly loved. I delight in you. And we ought to speak those kinds of words to His people as well to build one another up as fits the, heat, the occasion here. And why? That it may, may give grace to those who hear. Just as God's words give grace to each one of us, our words give grace to each one of us as we speak the truth in love. Well, the final thing here beyond edifying speech is a gracious attitude. In the last two verses, 31 and 32, Paul contrasts the person with hostility in their hearts versus the person with forgiveness and tenderheartedness in their heart. 
He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He says here, we ought to put away this bitterness. We ought to put away anger. We ought to put away clamor, which means shouting and crying out. And instead, we should be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. Forgiveness, a willingness to forgive, is the foundation of a gracious attitude towards others. Sometimes that even means forgiving people who have never asked for forgiveness. Because we can forgive people in the personal realm and still seek justice in the judicial realm. Those two are not contrary to one another. And Paul says we ought to put away our anger and forgive one another, even if it means pursuing justice, that that other person would understand their crimes, understand what they have done to offend the body, and be corrected by them. But the attitude that we should possess is one of forgiveness. And Paul tells us why. He says, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, a refusal to forgive and a desire to harbor bitterness in our hearts is basically a declaration that my sin is worth forgiving, but your sin is not worth forgiving. That it's okay for Jesus to die for my sins, but it's not okay for me to forgive you of your sins. When we understand the grotesqueness and the ugliness of our sins and the cost that Jesus has paid, then we become willing and ready to forgive quickly, to let go of bitterness and malice and rage and embrace forgiveness. And you know you've truly forgiven people when there is no more bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice, but rather kindness in your heart and tender-heartedness towards others. Fairly weighty statements from the Apostle Paul. And he tells us the central reason why they're so important. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The Lord Jesus has died so that we would put off sin and put on righteousness. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to apply all the righteousness of Jesus, all the power of Jesus to our hearts so that we would live out that righteousness. And to live in opposition to that is to frustrate the purposes of the Holy Spirit by whom we have been sealed until the day when Jesus takes us home and glorifies us and makes us new. And far be it from us to be the people who would grieve the one who loves us so much. You can almost hear the Holy Spirit going to the Father and the Son who have sent the Spirit into our hearts and say, it grieves me to see how they treat one another. How much better for the Holy Spirit to go to the Father and the Son and say, look how gloriously they live for you. Look how they seek your honor. Look how they want to magnify your name. 
I don't know about you, but this is weighty teaching for me. I can often be like that runner who sets his own pace and feels quite comfortable in it until the Word of God comes along and pushes me a bit. And the light of the Gospel truth begins to shine into every nook and cranny of my heart and I begin to see my anger. I begin to see my malice. I begin to see how I use my words and how destructive it is to others and to me. It's at that point that we need to cry out, Mercy, Lord. To come to Christ. To ask for His forgiveness. And for His transforming grace in us. Because you see, while Paul gives all of these examples of holiness, they're never examples that are divorced from the Gospel. But ones that are empowered and motivated by grace as we come to Jesus and know Him better. Let's seek Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God who speaks to us as Your children and that You, in effect, discipline us by the Word, by revealing to us just how we are comfortable in our sin and yet wanting to prod us along so that we live holy lives for You. And we pray now for the grace of Jesus, for forgiveness of our sins, for His power at work in us, so that we would continually put off what is rotten and putrid, and that we would put on His righteousness that is beautiful and holy, and live a life of peace with one another. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.